0: I've told this long story to say that unbeknownst to me, I was on the path to becoming a speaker when I'd kind of forgot about my goal to become a speaker and it flowed out of just really trying to help people and share what I know. And so my advice to people, you know, about how to do that is first, you know, what do you know and then and how can you give that knowledge away and if you're adding value to people then they're going to start asking you to do that more and more.
1: Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast
0: with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me today for episode 46 of the Impact Makers Podcast. I've had the best job in the world for over 10 years now, where I have the privilege of speaking on stages and in training rooms to groups of leaders around the world about how to increase their influence, focus strategically, and make a positive impact at work and in life. When I stepped out on my own in 2010 to start my business, I had a little bit of experience, a healthy dose of confidence, and a whole lot of hope that I could build the relationships and create impactful presentations that would result in a successful speaking business. But like a lot of things in my life where I tend to jump off the cliff first and then think about my parachute later, I wasn't fully prepared for what it would take to find my lane to determine how to set my speaking fees and to learn how to become a recognized expert. So cue admission into the School of Hard Knocks where I've gained quite an education along the way and as a result have ultimately managed to build a business and a life that I truly love. Last year, my friend, Dr. Daniel Crosby, who is a great public speaker himself, and was also a guest on episode 14 of the Impact Makers podcast, where he talked about understanding human behavior to do well, do good, and do you, asked if I would join him on his Standard Deviations podcast to talk about what it takes to create great presentations, and if you're into that kind of thing, how to actually get paid to speak, which is one of the most frequently asked questions we both receive. Over a year later, the content of our conversation is still accurate and timely, and I continue to hear from people in Dr. Crosby's audience who have found it helpful. So I asked him if I could share it with you today, and if you're interested in crafting great presentations and or getting paid to speak, I think you'll find it helpful. Just to note that in this episode, I mentioned several books, resources, and people that I recommend to those who are interested in improving their public speaking skills or building a speaking business. And you can find links to all of those in the show notes. And you can also download a free resource that I've created for you called 10 Tips to Build Your Brand and Land Gigs as a Speaker. Again, head on over to the show notes for all of those goodies. Dr. Dan is truly one of my favorite people, and I want to thank him again for allowing me to share our conversation with you today. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by Jennifer McClure, who is an entrepreneur, keynote speaker, leadership coach, and former HR executive who works with business leaders to build their influence, think strategically, And create maximum positive impact at work and in life. She's a top rated speaker who has presented to over 50,000 people all around the world. She's the host of her own popular weekly podcast, Impact Makers. Welcome, Jennifer McClure.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me here with you today. It's an honor to be here.
1: No, it's wonderful to have you. So I read the formal bio, but let's get real first thing. What is something fun or interesting about you that doesn't show up on the work bio?
0: I'd say it's that I don't have it all together, unlike my bio written by my mom says. <laughs> it's, I am an imperfect being. Um, nobody ever puts that in their bio, by the way, that she is flawed. She makes mistakes. She, she doesn't make everyone happy. So that's, that's something that probably isn't out there. But I usually, when asked that question, say, I'm a farmer. I don't just have horses, cats, and dogs. I have cows, people.
1: Cows. So I didn't know. I only see the horses. I didn't know you had cows. Well, you know, the cows are very
0: camera shy. They're not as photogenic as the horses. And they live on my mom's farm in Tennessee. But uh, continuing the tradition of my family, we are
1: farmers. Oh, man, that is wonderful. So I went to our family farm in South Alabama recently to visit my grandmother, who's rehabbing from knee surgery. And... I, something took hold of me. We got a couple hundred acres there. And I, I came back and told my wife, I'm like, it's time, you know, it's time to leave the big city and like, let's go get an acreage. And, you know, my wife, who's from Connecticut, was like, Nice try, bud. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> but the roots they call to you, right? <laughs> they do. And so now, now my thing is, I'm trying to position it as uh, owning real assets. I'm trying to position it as an investment opportunity. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Probably. I can't probably- wait to see your PowerPoint presentation <laughs> that you give. <laughs> probably not well. <laughs> so Jen, my my first job out of college, I don't think a lot of people know this, but my first job out of college was uh, working in in talent. One of the first things I did was I worked for a consultancy who did pre-employment assessments. So before a bank or a healthcare organization would hire an executive, they would bring me in to give them IQ tests and EQ tests and personality measures and see if they're a liar and all sorts of things. What is the biggest hiring mistake that you see most companies making? Because getting in and seeing that sausage made was really kind of infuriating to me. It made me a little crazy. So, so what do you see companies doing wrong in this hiring space?
0: i probably going to say something that, you know, goes against the conventional wisdom and, you know, the the adage of hire slow, fire fast. I'm not a fan of that. I think the biggest mistake the companies make is that we wait too long to hire. I don't understand why those things need to be mutually exclusive. Why can't you hire quicker, but also do a thorough job of determining if the person has the right skills and has the ability to do the job? So, Too often, I see leaders fall back on that. We're just going to take our time. We're going to take forever. Uh, We're going to have them talk to 72 people, take five days vacation from work to come meet with us. And then we still want to make sure we see two or three other candidates And as a result, they lose talent, their employer brand gets affected because nobody wants to take five days of vacation to see, you know, a company where they may or may not get the job and then probably won't even get a thank you letter. So I really think we need to step up our game. We need to understand how important this process is. I realize, you know, these could be life decisions that we're making. People might be with us for life. But there's no reason why we first shouldn't have done the homework up front as to what the right person for the job is, the skill sets, the, the culture fit, all of those things, and then have really speedy ways to be able to assess those things, make decisions and move forward, get people on board and get things done.
1: Oh, I love it because you think someone's probably looking and applying for multiple jobs and the 72 people thing is all too real. And it's really disrespectful of people's time. It doesn't do anything. I could tell you, you know, talking to that, that, that 71st person, I don't think adds any new insight. No, so It doesn't help. It has sort of the, the appearance of being thorough, uh, but is really just sort of wasteful of everyone's time. So I, I'm with you there. So if you had to hire based on just one criterion, what would it be and why? If you had to look for just one thing. Curiosity.
0: I really want someone who is always looking for What is new? How can I approach this a different way? Why is this happening? You know, not just from a data standpoint, but who can really look at something and say, either that's a problem or an opportunity. And I want to think about how I can take advantage of that or how I can avoid that. So the curiosity, I think, is missing, again, in a lot of people. And and some corporate cultures and environments really squash that in people, and that's a mistake. But that's going to be where you're going to get your... Your people who move the needle are people who have thought about things that no one else is thinking about, who are approaching things in unique and different ways, who are looking at, you know, what is happening differently than others. And so curiosity is going to be my number one pick.
1: So I think that's such a great answer. And as you bring it up, I've never articulated it thusly, but I think that's my number one requirement for a friend. You know, people who are incurious or people who are complacent or just sort of apt to settle or take things at face value. I just find them to be so dull. And and you know, the reverse is also true. People who are always searching and exploring and growing and going down new paths, I find are just the most the most delightful people to be around. So I think that's a a wonderful answer.
0: Yeah, we all kind of get frustrated with people that we interact with where they're like, Well, this just won't work. And you're like, and and what what's next you know and they're like well we're just going to just do you're not going to do that and you're like wait let's explore ways to make it happen i don't i don't
1: understand <laughs> okay. so the number one question i get asked i'm not going to ask you about the number one question i get asked is about writing a book so i find that everyone wants to talk to me about writing a book but but a close second to that is i get asked about becoming a public speaker now, I do a ton of public speaking. You do more. So tell us a bit about uh, your journey to get from being this HR executive to being the the prolific and talented public speaker you are today.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. Prolific and talented. I'm going to add that to the bio. No,
1: put that in the bio. <laughs> tell your mom. <laughs> Tell your mom to throw it in there.
0: <laughs> we got you know, we're still covering for the imperfect person. The path to speaking for me, I guess, you know. It really does mirror that curiosity. About ten years into my h r career, you know, just good mid-level hR management uh, was actually sitting in a Japanese automotive company where I was the H r manager, listening to union avoidance training <laughs> that was being delivered by a consultant that that I had found and we had worked with on a number of training opportunities. And if you've ever been to union avoidance training, it's probably right up there with sexual harassment training and other things. It's just not really a way to make it interesting or fun. And he did. Uh, he was in his 70s. He had worked at General Motors and in Industrial Relations for like 48 years. And he just told story after story after story and had us laughing and you know was able to really make good points. And I sat there on the back row that day and I thought, I love what he's doing, and I love the idea of teaching and bringing people along into something and showing them new ways of looking at things. And oh, by the way, he works for himself and has his own company, and that sounds pretty cool. So I was in my 20s, you know, at the time, and I thought it would be great someday to do that kind of work. I don't know that I necessarily, at the time, you know, the internet wasn't really around and things like that, so I don't think I'd thought about, you know, what a a speaker or seen a video or anything of another speaker. I just thought, you know, what he's doing, teaching, having a good time, sharing stories looks really interesting to me. And someday I'd like to do that, but I've only got 10 years of experience. I don't have great stories like he does yet. And so I just kind of in my mind put out there that day, 20 years in, I'm going to become a speaker because I'll have some stories. (laughs) And so fast forward a few years, about 18 and a half years, the company I worked for as a VP of HR, I'd been brought on board to do a financial cultural turnaround. We did that. We sold the company. And despite the promises that were made about, we love the executive team and we want to keep you all. We all know how those things go. And I found myself out on the street. And I don't know that I really kind of went, well, You know, I'm going to have to pull that speaking dream up. I just thought, Maybe it's time for me to start my own business because I was really burnt out on HR and the corporate world because it had been really heavy lifting to, to turn around a company that was about to go bankrupt and that had been heavily unionized for many years and people didn't feel respected or treated well. And we had changed a lot of things. they were really positive. Uh, the goal was to sell the company in five years. We sold it in two and a half. So good things had really happened, but man, it took a lot of work. So I wasn't really excited about, you know, just signing up for another opportunity to do that or to go backwards. And so I thought, well, I'll go start my own business and I'll just, you know, become a consultant because that was what everybody did that didn't have a job, right? (laughs) And so, thankfully, uh, I engaged a career coach and really just thought that he would tell me that you are perfect to start your own business and and we're going to coach you through that and he did it. He put me through his process, thankfully, which was that I had to develop a marketing plan for myself. I had to go out and actually talk to people with some objectives of jobs that I was pursuing or careers that I was pursuing and get their advice. So it was a great way, you know, thankfully of looking at the whole kind of in transition process. It wasn't that I'm out here asking people to help me find a job. I'm asking people to help me understand, you know, what their advice and counsel and wisdom would be on the career path that I might take. And so his model was to choose 3. And so He said, well, you've been in HR, you've done a lot of recruiting, so HR should probably be one, recruiting should be another, and then this other is you want to start your own business. And so... You know, long story short, I had to be on the remedial plan. I didn't know anybody. So he had to give me three contacts to start with. You know, it's legit. I didn't know anybody, only the people I'd worked with. And those probably weren't the people to call and say, help me (laughs) figure my life out. And so I started with people and then kind of started really networking to people that were consultants or owned their own firm, but also people in leadership roles of all kinds. It became, for an introvert, I made it into a game and a process of always getting three names, you know, building trust in the the communication that we had enough that I could get them to give me three names of people that they would recommend that I talk with. So I talked to, you know, C level executives, women leaders, business owners of all times. I don't think I talked to one single person who was a speaker, but I did talk to a lot of people who were consultants or recruiters and All of them, 100% of them said, you are not ready to start your own business. So please don't choose that path because you, number one, you don't know what you have to sell. Number two, you have never done any kind of business development. You've never sold anything. And so if you start your own business, you're probably not going to make it. And I'm so, so grateful for that advice because I would not have made it. I was 100% sure that that would have been, you know, I'd been like everybody else. My shingle's up call me <laughs> you know and I didn't again this was 2005 2006 so you know the internet was there but it wasn't what it is today for online entrepreneurs and so I would have failed and and so they recommended that I go into recruiting executive recruiting which I thought was a really bad idea but people convinced me otherwise smarter people than me and they convinced me that I should find a firm that would do the business development, client development in a way that was tolerable to me. So I'm not a cold caller, never have been, never will be. I'm not a shove my business card in your face at a networking event kind of person, but I I can build relationships. I'm curious. Again, I think that's always been an advantage for me. I'm curious about people. And so I'm pretty good at building relationships because I want to know more about you. And so they connected me with a firm called Centennial Link here in Cincinnati, family-owned firm. The owner had been there for, oh, I think 34 years when I joined the company. And he was known as someone who just built relationships and, and business flowed out of that. So started there, he was willing to give me a chance. It was 100% commission, again, retained search. So I had to convince somebody to trust me enough to pay me a lot of money up front to go out and find senior leaders for them. So that did involve a lot of really uh, you know, intense relationship building for months before I even got my first client. But during my transition, so many people had been helpful to me. I remembered one meeting that I had been to, an executive net meeting where the executive was sharing his kind of experience through job search. And he said that he made the commitment that once he got a job, he would give away 10% of his time to helping people and give back because so many people had been helpful to him in his transition and so that resonated with me so here i am my job is to build relationships my time is my own and so i decided to give away 10% of my time with senior executives who were in transition and if you know anything about recruiters the way it works people the way people think it works think it works is that recruiters get jobs for people that's not the way it works you know recruiters get people for the clients That have specific jobs. But, you know, so they often don't just meet with you for the purpose of meeting with you. But I decided to do that for about 10% of my time each week. Offer to meet with senior executives in transition, help them with their resume, their interviewing skills, the craft their story, whatever they wanted to do at that time. And it was really revealing in a lot of ways because so many, because there was nothing at stake. I didn't have a job. And so a lot of times I could be very honest and I could. Uh, pinpoint things in their story that didn't make sense. You know, a lot of times if people have been fired or otherwise let go, especially if they've been a successful senior executive, they're either trying to ignore that fact or they're trying to hide it. And so to call them out on it and really work through how they could talk about those things was invaluable to them because they ultimately would have made a mistake going into an interview when an interviewer would have seen that, but they would not have, you know, worked through that with them. And I also showed them how to use LinkedIn because this was 2006. It was relatively new. And I said, well, here's a way I can add value. Let me show you how to create a profile, build some relationships, etc. And... So many of those executives found what we did in that time helpful that they then started asking me once they got jobs to come in and talk to their leadership team about networking and relationship building or to their HR recruiting team about how they could use social media to attract and recruit talent. And church groups started asking me to come and speak about networking to their people who were in transition. And so I've told this long story to say that unbeknownst to me, I was on the path to becoming a speaker when i kind of forgot about my goal to become a speaker. And it flowed out of just really trying to help people and share what I know. And so my advice to people, you know, about how to do that is first, you know, what do you know? And then, and how can you give that knowledge away? And if you're adding value to people, then they're going to start asking you to do that more and more. And so it turned out that over time, I was getting asked to speak more and more that I finally said, well, I need to charge some money because it's taken me away from my day job. And by the way, I was doing this with full support of the recruiting firm that I worked with. They, thankfully, they saw that as a value to have me kind of out there talking. And then eventually said, you know, I think, I think it's time. And, and that 20-year dream kind of came back to me about 21 years into the journey. And I said, I got some stories now. People are, are resonating with what I'm saying. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to make a, a go at this full-time speaking thing. So I always tell people if who want to be a speaker, it's a journey. You know, I don't think, I don't know anybody That is a speaker who's doing this for a living or either a big component of their business who just one day said, I'm gonna be a speaker and again, hang their shingle up and people start clamoring to pay them unless they're a celebrity or they've climbed Mount Everest uh, blind or something like that.
1: (laughs) So it's interesting how your experience mirrors my own. I mean, I, I began speaking frankly because I didn't have an advertising budget. I mean I wanted to get out in the community I started my own business, wanted to get out in the community and increase awareness of my offerings and, and who I was and meet new people. and so I began speaking um, you know quite, quite by accident and then you know people liked it and over time uh, you know again much like you started to get enough requests. Uh, and for large enough audiences that I felt like I could begin to charge, but yeah, early on this was just something I I did. I laugh a bit because you felt like you needed to wait twenty years, uh, twenty years to get the sort of experience and uh, you know good stories that that would make you an interesting speaker. I waited about eighteen months. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, had, I had I had twenty months experience when I began uh, trying to position myself as a public speaker. But I think the best speakers are experts first and, and speakers second. Like you're, you're an expert who who happens to speak because I find that the path, like you said, to just trying to be a speaker is, I don't think I've ever seen it work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, seek, seek to be knowledgeable first, seek to be an expert first, and then, uh, you know, add value and, and maybe you'll get there. So... You know, one of the reasons why I think people want to be a speaker is because they perceive it as a, sort of a sexy thing, right? You get to stay in nice hotels, you get, you know, you get approached by people, you get to sign books, you get to get up in front of a lot of people. What's something about the life of a speaker that, that most people don't understand?
0: Oh well, it's like most things. We we see the we share the good parts on the Facebook fake life, and you know the the really not so sexy parts don't don't ever see the light of day. I mean, I do share with humor uh, some of the things that happen that maybe aren't so sexy, but that's not what people remember. They're like, I saw your hotel room view last week in Las Vegas. It was amazing. And you're like, yeah. Do you remember the dumpster view in Iowa? You know, <laughs> no, no, I don't remember that. So, I I think you know. People perceive, as you said, it's that it's um, that it's a glamorous life, and and I'm I always say, you know, I hashtag my post on social media, living the dream, um, because I am, and I I really enjoy the full journey. You know, the the days where it's a slog, the days where it's you know you're you're like I can't believe my life, I can't believe I'm here. I think you have to really appreciate that whole thing because there are some things about it that are challenging. I mean, first of all, you're putting yourself up to be judged by, you know, whether it's two people in the room or 2,000 people in the room or 20,000 people in the room. More than likely, if you think about anything in life, 50% of the people in the room are probably not going to like it. I, don't, <laughs> I mean, I guess the, you're the the math guy, so the probabilities may not be that exact, but there's all, from the get-go, no matter what comes out of your mouth, you could be Jesus and, you know, not everybody liked him, you know. So <laughs> what you have to say is going to be criticized. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be questioned. You're going to be called out, uh, sometimes wrongly, sometimes rightly. And with, with uh, the internet and social media, some people do that publicly. But some people do it anonymously on feedback forms. And some people, you'd be surprised how many choose to feel the need to do it to your face. So I think that's something that people often don't think about. And, and I heard a quote, I think it was T.D. Jakes, Reverend T.G. Jakes, who said it in uh, one of Obama's inauguration things. And I wrote it down then. It was, you can't stand in the light if you can't take the heat hmm. or something to that effect. And that always resonates with me. It's like, you, if you're going to accept that limelight of you know, you know people coming up and standing in line going, you changed my life. And they do say that. And that's wonderful. You also got to take the person who waited to be last to come and tell you all the reasons why you're wrong, and they hated everything you said.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so refreshing to hear this uh, from from someone who knows. Because yeah, I, I feel like there are uh, three types of people. After I give a presentation, there's uh, the you're a genius. There's the can I uh, can I have a stock tip, and then there's the you're an idiot. Why you know why did you waste my time? And they're about an equal measure. And you know, I'll I'll never forget the first time I gave a TED talk. I mean, it was one of the biggest days of my career. It absolutely blew up. It it really just was so well received. And I remember the first thumbs down and critical comment I got on YouTube, and it just broke my heart. And then when I wrote, uh, you know, when I wrote my first book, I remember I'll never forget my first critical review was a one-star review on Christmas Day.
0: (laughs) First of all, who's reading books about money on Christmas Day?
1: (laughs) Well, somebody got it in their stocking and was very upset. It was not, it was (laughs) their, it was their coal, I guess. But you know, it's, it's interesting though. I love what you said. I, I confided in a friend that I was, you know, upset, upset by these critical reviews. And he said, look, Daniel, you know, there's two types of people in the world. There's, there's people who are out there writing books and there's people who are at home on Christmas day saying mean things about people who are in the arena. So I think you have to, to to choose this life eyes wide open, that it comes with a measure of, of critical feedback. And, you know, you have to Understand that some of it's meaningful and good and some of it says more about the person than it does your your presentation So it's it's cathartic Mm -hmm. for me to hear it hear it from you So if you had to give a recipe card, so I'm a uh, you know, I'm a big baker uh, love to cook have this recipe card with all these family recipes, that's one of my treasured possessions. It'd be the, the first thing I'd grab in a fire. Uh, if you had to write down a recipe card for a great speech, what would be on in that recipe?
0: Sure. Well, I'm visual, so I like recipe cards with pictures. So, I, you know, I'd first say it's kind of what's what's the uh, the picture or the change that you want to create? You know, what action is it that you're wanting people to take as a result of having listened to your talk? I think the biggest mistake many people make who think about becoming a speaker or who, you know, approach me or you or anyone else and say, I'd love to be a speaker someday. They haven't really thought about, they just like the idea of being a speaker, standing <laughs> on stage and, you know, that it looks looks like fun and you get to travel and and I think I'm good at speaking, but they haven't really thought about what's my message. And is that unique? You know, is, why would somebody choose my recipe over somebody else's? And so that's, that's the kind of going to the grocery store, you know, we're getting the ingredients. You have to really think about what's the outcome. That I'm trying to create, and what are the ingredients? And the ingredients would be stories, you know, maybe some data or some research to support. If you're trying to convince people to make a decision, and then some anecdotes that go along the way. So my recipe for for a good talk is, you know, an opening story. Always you. It's too many speakers start their talks with, you know, here's here's the title of my talk that you're reading on the slide and here's five minutes about me and why I think I'm qualified to speak to you. And then here's 10 things I'm going to tell you. And point number one is, you know, so uh, you've lost them. A long, long time before you even get to point number one, if you're doing that. So the best speakers that I see really come out and, and you, you know, now that I'm looking for it, maybe it's not as noticeable to someone else. It's, it's, I'm like, wow, they've got the magic formula when they come out and they just walk straight center stage and they start with a story. They say, imagine if, or remember a time, or let me take you back to 1988. Mm -hmm. And so right away, they're setting the scene and they're drawing you in. And so that opening story is probably the most critical piece as to whether or not people are gonna choose to listen to you. So that's really kind of setting the stage. And then depending on how long you have to talk, I think this works, You know, whether it's a, a 10 minute talk or an hour talk, probably no more than three points I have a talk that way back when I created has seven points because I just wrote down all the things I could think of. And then I smashed that into an hour and 15 minute talk and people still love it and they still request it, but it's really hard. (laughs) Seven is a lot. And if I had to do it over again, I'd say three or maybe five at the most, but... Probably three points that you want to then flesh out. And as I said, if you're trying to convince somebody to, to change their behavior or make a move, you've got to bring something that probably is in the realm of facts or data or research. So try to find some credible stuff. If you have your own facts, data, research, then that's probably even better. Or if you can create that legit and with each of those points, you know whether it's a short story or an anecdote, again to really show either how someone took that and put it into action or how it affected you. I, I think you mix in stories that include your experiences as well as others. You know, I don't think it's necessarily a mistake for a speaker to share all their own stories. Or to share all the stories of others. But I think when people see that they can relate to you because you're sharing a story about a failure or a success, that helps again to kind of keep them in your your orbit while you're giving your talk. So opening story, probably three points with some anecdotes, some research, some stories, and then a good closing story. And if you are magical, if you, you know, more and more I hear speakers saying that they really study comedians, And I study comedians and good pastors, good preachers. Uh, (laughs) If you can in some way wrap your ending story, do a callback back back to your opening story, which I haven't mastered that yet, but I'm working on it. That's when people, you want to see people get an uh aha when you wrap that story back to what you talked about in the beginning and either show a change or, uh, you know, some triumphant victory that happened or... Maybe even just tell the result of the story that you maybe left them hanging on at the beginning. That is a great talk. And as I said, I I like some pastors that are really good at this, especially nowadays. They have to be good because in the short attention span world, they can't just get up there and teach the Bible. They've got to really tell stories and bring people in. And I was attending my mom's church, which is a, a denomination that's not really known for you know, being really riveting messaging. (laughs) It's more traditional, more uh, highbrow church, I call it. I mean, I grew up in that church, but uh, they got a new pastor and uh, he was sharing a story the last time I went to visit with her. And he started out telling a story about taking his family on a road trip vacation through Montana. And so he told all the details about, you know, unlimited speed limit and, you know, miles and miles of just nothing but... Nothing. And, you know, going to a gas station in the middle of nowhere, the only one they'd seen and trying to fill up with gas. And they've got two little kids and it's chaos. And she's trying to, you know, go to potty breaks and get the food. And he's trying to, you know, long story short, ends up down the road a bit, gets pulled over by the constable because he forgot to pay for gas. Ah. And they actually put him in the back of the police car. They put handcuffs on him. He's telling him, I'm a pastor. And they're like, we don't care. Everybody drives away from that gas station. We're sick of it. And he kind of leaves the story right there and then goes into a little bit of teaching. And you're like, wait, what? You're in the back of a... You got arrested in Montana, which, by the way, the police, the constable told him that uh, driving away from the gas station is a felony in Montana. Uh, you're in handcuffs, your kids are crying, your wife's crying. And then he goes on and he teaches these two or three points. And and I kind of was like, wow, he, he left us hanging there. And then at the very end, he goes, and... And, you know, I was sitting in the back of that car. We go back to the gas station. We're talking to the owner and the the big guy, the big police officer. You know, there's probably two in the whole county uh, comes and it just happens that he's the brother-in-law of the gas station owner who is adamant that he is sick and tired of people driving off and he wants to press charges. And he said, the big guy walks in and he says, how much was the gas bill? And he's like, 30 bucks or something. He's like that. And he goes, you really want to put this guy in jail and charge him with a felony? He clearly made a mistake. And the gas station owner's like, yeah, I'm sick of it. I want, and he goes, he takes out $31 from his own pocket and he puts it on the counter and he goes, there, his bill's paid, let it go. And he wraps it back and he says, that's what Jesus did for us. He paid the debt. And I was like, (gasps) oh, Oh my gosh, that's the best. I mean, I'm not telling it like he did it all, but it was like, not only did he, he wrap up the story, he, he hit his points with a big boom in a way that you're like, amazing. You know, he could have stood up there and told, Jesus paid the debt for you. And you'd have been like, yeah, I know that I read the Bible. Um, <laughs> but that's what a great speaker does. you know. And, and I think if you can start with a story, tell two or three points end with a story. If you want to take it next level, wrap that story back to the beginning, you are doing some great work as a speaker.
1: Well, so it's incredible how how similar the conclusions we've arrived at are because I, I recently came across a, a personal treasure, which was the first ever public speech I gave. And it was a one hour speech, you know, whatever, 50, 55 minute speech. And it had seventy two slides, oh my goodness, and, 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 <laughs> and I probably looked, sixty points in there right <laughs> yeah and and twelve bullet points per slide and so when when I looked at this, I just said man it is it is a wonder i I ever got off of you know off of square one with with such an inauspicious beginning, but yeah, I've learned the same thing you you tell stories, you start and end with a story, there's something in psychology called the primacy and recency effect where people have the, the best memory for uh, the first part and the last part of an interaction. So leave them floating with a beginning and an ending story. Keep your points to about three or four. I have a presentation on the 10 commandments of investor behavior uh, that I still get asked to do a lot and it is, it's too much. Like, it's good, people like it, but it's, it's too much. And, you know, adult learning theory shows us that if people remember two or three things from your speech, you've done a very good job. So just just be intentional about highlighting those two or three. A third point you mentioned was about sort of authenticity and self-disclosure. Self-deprecation, I think, is another useful tool. But I feel like there's, there's a line to walk there because I think the most likable speakers uh, give you a piece of themselves. They let you in a bit. But I find that the least likable speakers make it all about them. I, I attended a, a speech recently where I felt like I was a voyeur in someone's therapy session and it was just, it was too much. So, you, you know, learning to walk the line between being self-disclosing and self-deprecating and authentic w- while still knowing that it's not all about you, but that that blend of, of authenticity and stories and data, I think is is an absolute recipe for success.
0: So and I think, uh, you know, I I follow a speaker or someone that I've Heard speak in the past and I listened to her podcast, Michelle Kashat. She's a faith-based speaker who's a two-time cancer survivor. And and I've heard her share, they've done like an episode on, you know, when you're telling your story, how soon is too soon. And and her point is, you know, first of all, if, if you haven't worked through your story and come out on the other side, then it's not, you don't get up on stage and cry or, you know, you're right. still obviously in the throes of it. Uh, but you also, it's back to that, your story has to have a point. If you're going to share a personal story, What's the purpose of that? You know, where are you leading people, your audience, who's the ultimate customer of your talk? Where are you leading them with that story? Is it just for the purpose of saying, you know, let me tell you a story about me or is there a real point and a path that you're getting to? And I think I saw Mike Rowe from, you know, Dirty Jobs fame speak for the second time last week at an HR technology conference, by the way. Uh, first time I saw him was at the Sherm National Conference. So apparently he's got an HR thread in his speaking. But both times, the first time at the Sherm conference, he told, he just told like for, you know, if he had 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes on stage, the first 20 minutes of it was he told a story about the first time he did Dirty Jobs you know, going into the sewers in San Francisco. And it's hilarious. And of course, on Dirty Jobs, if you've ever seen the show, he's the butt of the jokes and he's in on, you know, and so you love him. And then he wrapped it up at the end about, you know, how these are the jobs that actually make America, you know, work. And and they don't get enough credit and they don't get recognition. And that's why he did the show. And then this last talk last week in HR technology conference, he spent, if he had 30 minutes on stage, 28 minutes, he told a story about artificially inseminating cows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he had people rolling in the audience. And I did hear a couple of people go, is he ever going to talk about anything relevant? But most people loved it. And at the end, again, he did the same thing, wrapped it back into these are the jobs that, you know, really make America work. And we, we have to do more to... Um, and he had a couple of slides that showed, you know, how we we kind of uh, do marketing for college degrees versus kids who do, you know, maybe want to do vocational jobs and how the messaging is all wrong. So I think, you know, he landed both of those planes with really strong points. He's a celebrity speaker, so I wouldn't recommend anybody get up there and give a 28-minute, you know, hilarious talk and then try to make one point. If you're being hired at a, you know, a professional conference, people do want takeaways. But I think that's the power, again, of a good story. I'm yeah. sure he got paid a lot more than I did to be there. <laughs> right.
1: So you you provide an excellent opportunity, an excellent segue uh, within this getting asked about being a speaker. I get asked all the time uh, how to price yourself as a speaker. That is something that I didn't do very well, candidly, early on. I, I remember I remember being in Salt Lake and giving a presentation and walking off the stage and my client approached me and said wow you did a great job it's a shame that everyone at the home office thinks you suck oh says, there's that there's that critical feedback right and i was like wait what and i said why does why does everyone at headquarters think i suck and he said well you're one of our speakers that are available you know to our wholesalers and other people you're one of our speakers, but all they have is your name, a brief bio, and your price. And so he said, your price is so low, people infer from that low price that you suck. And I said, wow, okay. you know." And I tripled my prices the next day. I mean, no joke. I went home and I tripled my prices because I hadn't accounted for the psychology of, of price being a marker of value. So, you know, that said, you can't come right out of the chute charging what, you know, someone listening to this who's trying to build a practice can't come right out of the chute charging what Jennifer McClure charges today. So how do you think about pricing yourself in this conversation?
0: I love that the behavioral psychologist did not account for value in pricing. That oh, isn't that terrible? <laughs> you need to stick a pin in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, if people ask me, and as you said, you know, probably the the biggest question or most frequently asked question again is how do I become a speaker, and the second one is some version of how do I get paid to speak. And I always tell people it's a journey, a journey. Uh, yes, where I am today is certainly not where I started, which free, which was free, which is where everybody starts. But you do get that wisdom along the way, where you realize maybe you're undercharging. You have to kind of know what the market will bear, which is difficult because that means you need to talk to other speakers who will tell you what they're charging, and or you know maybe an event planner that might tell you, but that's probably rare. So you know you have to. I think it, it's like most things, you have to build relationships so that then you can understand what your peers are doing and that they're comfortable sharing with you. Um, You know, I only have a couple of people that I I have that information with that I think are relevant and, and in the same space as me. And so they've helped me kind of in my journey. But very early on when I first started charging, I called a friend who I knew was speaking at a lot of events and I do know him well. And I said, hey, what would you recommend that I charge? You know, this is a one of the first gigs that I'm doing, or I'm asking to be paid where you've spoken to these organizations before, what would you recommend? And he gave me a recommendation and I started there. And I think, you know, we we all like round numbers. So everybody's like, you know, 250, 500, that's probably a good place to start. You know, in the beginning, you might get free or a Starbucks gift card or maybe a $50 gift card. But once you start charging, you start small and you see how people receive that when you say, when they say, we'd love for you to come and speak for 12 hours to our, you know, that 5,000 person audience and you go, well, my fee's $5,000 and they go, oh, you know, there's two ways that, oh, could be, it's like, oh, that's too cheap or, oh, that's too much. The, <laughs> the, the secret has always been, and I cannot say that I have until this day mastered it. You have to give your price and then you have to be quiet. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the quiet part is the important part because then you get to hear what that O actually means. The O is either, wow, that's a lot less than everybody else. And wow, that's great. Sign us up. You know, send us your fee agreement. And you're like, dang it. <laughs> or the O is that is uh, far more than we had budgeted. We only had $450 budgeted. And then you can decide, do you take something away? And that's the second piece to the pricing equation, which I have failed at along the way, is if you state a price and then you back off the price, you ideally need to take something away because if you don't, then you just said that the first value wasn't real. Right. So what I've learned, you know, I'm, I'm eight and a half years into a business as a full-time public speaker, but I probably did speaking for, let's say a year and a half or more, Getting paid something while I was in the recruiting business, uh, so let's just say ten years in, and I'm I'm still learning, uh, still you know work with others to help me get there. But I have learned now when I state my price, I say, and for that price you get me for the whole day. I'm willing to do in a breakout session to moderate a panel, participate on a panel. I am happy to help promote your event if you want me to write a blog post for your newsletter. I'll do some social media posts. That's what you get for that price. And then I shut up. And if they say, well, that's more than we have budgeted. And I say, well, what is your budget then? If it's in the ballpark and I've, I've learned, been taught to have a high bar, low bar, you know, this is my high bar of what I want. This is the low bar of I won't take anything less than that. So in between that, I might negotiate depending on if it's in Hawaii. Or, you know, there's no place that I don't like to go. So, you know, you know some people might have some places they don't want to go. But then you can say, well, so if my price was, and I'm going to put a ridiculous number out there, $50,000 and your budget is 45000 and that's within my high bar, low bar range. But I told you, you get me for the full day. You get this, this, and this. Well, for 45 you get me just for my talk. I'll still do all the other things. You know, or something like that. because so, I have to take something away to show that the full price was the full value, and that's probably I, if I'm given a takeaway on pricing, that's not one I think you hear as often as you know, state your price and be quiet. But the under create a value package, and and I did that actually earlier this year. I was listening to a podcast with a speaker who you know, he was sharing a lot of great tips. And of course, the pricing question, how do you price came up? And he said, look, I get, you know, I'm very transparent about my price. He said, you you inevitably, you walk, and he was talking about hot leads, cold leads, and hot leads are the people that stand in line afterwards and give you their card and say, they want you to come speak at their conference next month. And he said, when those people come up and say, you know, we want you to come and speak at our conference, what's your fee? And he says, my fee is $15,000 for that. You get me for the full day, you get a case of books he says, and that's it. Because that's the price. He doesn't negotiate. And I was like, that is brilliant. I want to be able to have the confidence to be able to say, this is my price. Take it or leave it. But to have added, you know, I don't have a case of books to give away yet. So I came back home and I created, well, for my price, you get me for the full day. Will you do a breakout or a panel or something else? I'll do the social media posts. I'll do a blog post if you want. I'll do a video. If they say... We need to negotiate. If, if they're in my range, then I'll say, fine. Then you get me for the time of my talk and I'll do it for that. So, so the understanding, you know, things like you said, the, the value of at some point, I need to understand what the market will bear. I'm going to have to build the relationships in order to, to do that. I've got to start somewhere. That's the first step. Just start, throw a price out and then learn how to really sell the value of what you deliver. Because too many people look at speakers as a commodity. And they are in many ways, you know, there's, there's 50,000 to choose from and, if you go to any speaker website and you just put in a range of $5,000, you'll get 100 speakers. You know, So 100 people will speak to our event for $5,000. They are a commodity at that point. So back to that, what's your differentiation point? What What value are you adding? Can you equate what you share and the results that people in your audience get at the companies or the organizations that you speak to? So that might mean having some testimonials. That might mean having some real value, you know, research that shows if they follow your methods, this, this, and this happens. You know, the really, really people who do this really well are the people that can draw the correlation to if I come in your organization and I help you solve this problem. In other words, why are you having me come into your organization? What's the problem you're looking for me to address? How much is that costing your company? So if what I share solves that problem, then the value to you is $300,000, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well then my fee's thirty thousand. That's a bargain for you, you know. <laughs> or my fees three hundred thousand if I save it for you, you know, one year and you don't have to pay that again. So if you read the book and I read it early on called Million Dollar Speaking by Alan Weiss. He's got million dollar consulting, million dollar something else, that's his whole brand. Um, million dollar speaking, he he's very big on that value pricing. Um And I think for a lot of people who might be more motivational, that's a little bit more difficult. But if you're teaching somebody sales training or, you know, something where you're teaching and relating an actionable skill that if they actually do the work that you are teaching, there will be financial results Then you can charge a lot of money to do that.
1: Yeah. So one thing that I've learned to do is just what you said to set a price and walk away you're going to make some subset of the population angry by doing that. I think you have to to understand that, and people will say you're too expensive. To balance that out, I always try and do a couple of pro bono events a year. I did one, you know, last week for a for a charity who who wanted a speaker, and I said, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to do it at, at no charge. So. I try and keep my prices high <laughs> for, the, for the people who can pay and then leave myself the opportunity to give it away for free to, to people that really need it rather than you know you getting half of your regular price, them paying way more than, than they're comfortable with. So and I, I love this idea of, of charging relative to the value that you add and not just some sort of stock price. I think that's that's really wise. So you mentioned, you mentioned one book there, Million Dollar Speaking. Are there, are there other books uh, that have been influential to you uh, as you develop this practice?
0: Yeah, I think, uh, and I, you know, I always say it's a little known secret, but my friend Laurie Rudiman shares with me, it's not a secret at all. I don't read a lot. <laughs> it's not a secret, apparently. My friends know. But the books that I have read that I do take the time to read, I read a lot on the internet. Let me clarify that. I read a lot uh, every day. That's Daniel Crosby's tweets, his blog posts. And every now and then I read a book. And so when I started speaking, you did what, you know, most people do. Well, I need to go out and buy a book on speaking. And so Million Dollar Consulting was one of the ones that I bought. And then another, a friend of mine, Ryan Estes, who's a speaker that we started about the same time, but he has like rocketed into the stratosphere of he's a million dollar plus annual speaker now. And so Ryan's somebody that, you know, I kind of follow both from afar and is a friend who I've got mentoring and coaching from. And I attended a workshop that he did last November that was extremely helpful on pricing and client development and those types of things. Uh, Ryan started his career where I just started. He actually did what I did when I was in career transition. He engaged a coach called Jane Atkinson, and her name is Jane Atkinson. And her brand is The Wealthy Speaker, Wealthy Speaker University, speakerlauncher.com, I believe is her website. But she had a book called The Wealthy Speaker, And so I bought Million Dollar Consulting and The Wealthy Speaker. See a theme there? (laughs) (laughs) I want to speak, but I want to be rich. (laughs) Um, And I like to recommend both of those books to speakers because they come at it from different angles. Jane Atkins' book, The Wealthy Speaker, which there's now a 2.0 version, which is even better. I've read that one as well. And it has a lot of worksheets and exercises to work through. And her book really tries to get you to focus on pick a lane that, you know, really niche down your topic become the expert in your space as you said you're an expert who speaks not a speaker who talks about things uh, and so it's really good to kind of help you work through the exercises of what is my lane now both ryan estes and myself i've i've struggled with that lane you know for years i spoke about anything pretty much you wanted me to and there's great great wisdom out there. I don't, maybe it was Mark Twain or Abraham Lincoln that said it, but <laughs> if you speak to everybody, you speak to nobody, you know, so there is wisdom in that. And I, I've narrowed my lane and now it's more like a, a four lane highway. Ryan, for example, speaks on leadership and sales. And I speak on high impact leadership and talent strategies. You know, Jane Atkinson would probably, if she were my coach, tell me, pick one and really dive deep in that so that you become the only speaker people think about to talk about that topic. And so that book I think is really good for anybody at whatever level they're speaking to think about, you know, the marketing and the the quality of your speech. The million dollar consulting book, he's almost like in the opposite camp of her. He's like totally like value-based pricing and what he's more of a hard-hitting you, you don't necessarily have to accept all the advice in either one of those books, but I think it's a good kind of yin and yang. And if you take pieces from both of those as a speaker, or even as a, as I said, he's got million dollar consulting too. I've read that one as well. There, there's good takeaways from both of those. And then a third book would be Michael Hyatt's platform get noticed in a noisy world. I'm kind of a Michael Hyatt devotee. I've, I've bought a lot of uh, his products and courses. And I think that book really encapsulates a lot of what it, it takes to build a brand, you know, and, and it's, you know, it can, it conveys the simple things like get a website and, you know, use social media, but it's, it's a good, I think, uh, all encompassing book about kind of the marketing of yourself and what's required to get heard and get seen.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You brought up our friend, Lori Rudiman, who is, who, who is herself an accomplished speaker. And she told me something that's always stuck with me. She said, she and I were talking about pricing and she said that she felt you should be turning down roughly 50% of, of the gigs you're asked to do because you're too expensive. And mm-hmm. I, I've never, I'm, I'm still not there yet, but I, I think I'm probably in the 30% range. And I think that's a good, that's a good rule of thumb because early on, I basically said yes to everything. I didn't throw a price out there and shut up. I said, oh, you know, what? how much money do you have? And okay, fine. And so I think when you get to the point where you're a little, you've built up your business a bit, I think that's a great place to be. And you know, what's fascinating? I have, I have 10 x my speaking revenues since I became a very niche speaker. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I came out of the gate, you know, again, you want me to speak about anything under the sun. And as a psychologist, you know, everything, or at least we believe everything is behavior, right? I mean, anything that involves people, sure, I'll speak about it. (laughs) You know, leadership, sales, behavioral, economics, finance, sure, whatever. And really, uh, the, the great paradox and the great irony is that when I really really became super niche is when I, I got busy and and started making money so it's something that's scary to take that leap and it's counterintuitive in some ways but I but I can vouch that it's been a, a powerful principle in my own life so
0: Jennifer- I think it's uh, just to make one more point about that. Yeah. And, you know, anybody considering becoming a speaker, that's why I recommend the the wealthy speaker and and million dollar consulting, the two different kind of opposite ends of the coin. There is lots of ways to approach this, as you said. I mean, you can be a speaker who speaks for three thousand for a hundred events per year and make three hundred thousand dollars is that the right math check me on that um <laughs> or you can be a speaker who speaks for 30,000 10 times a year and makes 300,000 dollars. both of those are viable paths. both of them make sense and I've probably done both of those models but I I like you I mean as I've kind of changed and and as I said I went to Ryan Estes's uh, and, and Jane Atkins held a joint speaker um seminar workshop, three-day workshop last November that I went to. And it, and Ryan really encouraged me to set a keynote speaking fee. He said, Jen, you've been doing this long enough. You're worth it. You're speaking, you know, you've spoken all over the world and, you know, major conferences and events. Set a fee that you're slightly uncomfortable with and that's your fee. You state it and you don't walk away from it. And so my goal coming into 2018 was... Whenever somebody, you know, reaches out, you know, the email, what's your price, which I always want to have a phone conversation because I want to understand your event and if I'm a good fit. And then I state my price. This year I have turned down probably or been not accepted for probably more than 50% of the, the people that have reached out to me. But this year I will make more than I did last year. Yeah, speaking less, and, and I don't necessarily like that because I like speaking more. So my goal would be to keep the same fee now, but to get the, you know to to do the things I need to do to to double those speaking opportunities. But I think there comes a time, and I listened to a podcast interview with uh, John Acuff, who's one of my favorites last night on the way home, and and he was talking about you know the speaking and the pricing and and whatnot, and he said this September, so this month when we're we're doing this call, um that he will make more in September than he did in all of 2014. Wow. And he will, uh, so far this year, he's been on the road 24 nights, and he's been on vacation with his family 26 nights. Yeah. You know, so but yeah, he's got a couple of New York Times bestselling books, etc. So there's there's other things that go into that. So I don't think you know it's realistic for people to say, I'm gonna start out, I'm gonna charge ten thousand dollars and I'm gonna speak a hundred times or even ten times a year. It's a build and you figure out, like me, every year I make some different goals, whether it's to raise my fee or to speak less or to you know chop chop one of my 15 talks off. You know, now I'm down to about five Where probably three years ago, I had about 15 talks you could choose from. And next year, and I always try to create a new talk every year. So if in 2019, I have an idea for a new talk, I probably need to peel one of those five off and get down to four. You know, so that means I need to peel off two, I guess, because I'm going to add a new one. So, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to try to level up by doing things that at my level... Are necessary, and, and I think there's another good quote out there probably by Abraham Lincoln and Mark Twain of, you know, don't compare your to your today to someone's 10 years ago. So, you know, somebody who's just starting is my 10 years ago. So don't look at what I'm doing today and say, well, I want to put my shingle up and be charging what she's charging and speaking at these level of events. It takes time for most people. Again, you clown Malin ever's blind or you're a celebrity or you have some infamy you get more power to you.
1: <laughs> so this podcast is full of listeners who are infamous celebrities. So yeah, <laughs> you know preaching good. to the converted. Uh, good. So uh, Jennifer, just as a, as a closing, you have given us a, an absolute masterclass in, in how to build a speaking business. I'm, I'm already going to send this to a couple of friends who've asked me questions about this before we even officially air this. But just in closing, we want to leave people with some concreteness. If someone has heard your words today, they're inspired to try and build their own speaking practice, speaking business. What are two or three concrete steps that they can take today to begin to incrementally move in that direction?
0: Uh, first would be do the hard work of figuring out what your message is. What's your platform? You know, again, what is, what is the, the needle that you're trying to move? What are you trying to get people to accomplish? You know, I, I talk to so many people who say I want to be a speaker and I want to talk about courage. If I'm the buyer in a corporate world, which is everybody, even if it's an association or event what is the roi on developing courage you know <laughs> you know what what is the business value to my organization if my people have more courage but if I want to teach you how to be a better salesperson, or in my case, I want to teach people how to be impact makers, but I need to really drill down and, and continue to do a better job on how they can make an impact as a leader in their organization through you know hiring the right people, through developing their people better, through you know building the relationships they need to move their career forward. So I've got to think about my message and my outcomes. So that i don't think you can do the other steps until you've really i mean you can get out there and go to Toastmasters and practice your speaking skills, but to think about getting paid to be a speaker whether it's full time or a big piece of revenue for your business, there has to be an outcome to your talk, and you have to get really good at illustrating how people can get there. The second would be again to get get reps you know you, you've got to speak and and you will speak for free a lot in the beginning, unless you're that celebrity or the the athlete climbing Mount Everest, you find opportunities to speak. You know, for me, again, I spoke to a lot of church groups. I spoke to a lot of job search groups. I spoke to chamber of commerce organizations and, and was grateful for the opportunity, not only because it was helping me refine my message, but I was learning what worked and what resonated and what didn't. You know, I would see what would get me invited back versus what people are like, well, that's nice. Um, so you got to get out there. And I've never been to Toastmasters or things like that, but I know many, many really successful speakers uh, who have. So find ways that you can get out and give a talk. The good news is, is that today you can give talks online. You can do things like YouTube video, you know, series or once a week or some social media, Facebook lives, etc. cetera, you can start to see how uh, your message resonates. But it's also, I'm kind of going backwards here. I got out and I spoke in person a lot in the beginning. And now I'm actually challenging myself to think about, I haven't taken action yet, doing more video. And I started the podcast in March and I thought wrongly that podcasting would be easy because I can talk. Like you've asked me a question and, and I need to probably cut it off here, but I could talk for a long time and make a point. Podcasting for me has been much more challenging because I have to think about the medium and being really concise. And if I'm doing a solo episode, I need to think about what my teaching points are. And I can't do what I do in an in-person situation, which I think has fueled a lot of my success. I I interact really well with the audience. I take cues from the audience. My stories change based off what I see from the audience. And so you probably won't ever see in person the same talk from me twice. You'll see similar talks, but things will change based off of the feeling and the energy I get in the room. And if I'm sitting behind a podcast mic or in front of a camera for a YouTube video, that dynamic is not there. So I'm actually looking at this This is a way for me to level up my speaking to get more concise in my message delivering, to not depend so much on that audience. So find ways to speak, to challenge yourself, to really draw out the best in you and be critical, you know, self-critical in a constructive way of how you can get better. So watch yourself on video, video your talks. You don't have to hire a video crew, have a friend come with a, a cell phone and hold it up or put up a tripod, find a way where you can evaluate your own speaking Uh, transcribe your talks. I did that. One of my first keynotes, I sent it off to be transcribed, which everybody came, you know, not everybody, people came up, stood in line, told me I did great, wanted to take pictures with me. I left the keynote thinking this was a great experience. I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing. I'm in the zone. I sent my talk off to be transcribed. The actual transcription came back. I was horrified. (laughs) 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 I read those. I'm like, I rambled. I said those, you know, because when you're reading it, it's not the same as that conversational, even though there were 2000 people in the audience, I'm still very conversational. And so when I read it, I'm like, this could be so much more dialed in. So always be looking for ways to get better. And then the third, that was actually number two. (laughs) The third would be to network and build relationships build relationships with other speakers, there is no competition. No one out there is your competition. There's an event for everybody. There is a speaker that resonates with an audience. And those speakers then can also recommend you to be the speaker that they choose the next year. So I don't look at anybody as competition to me. I'm always looking for other people that I can refer because I'm often not, more often than not, the the right choice either because of my fee or in some cases it's just not, I'm just not the best speaker or in a lot of cases now I have spoken at this event. So they can't necessarily bring me back the next year. So, It's really nice for me and it helps to build the relationship with the event planner. If I'm able to say, you know, I enjoyed speaking at your event this year and here, if you're looking, there's three people that I recommend would do a great job for you next year. So those other speaker relationships are going to be invaluable to you for a lot of reasons, whether that's helping you evaluate your fees, but also being a resource you can refer and they'll refer business to you. I'd say probably the biggest source for me for referrals is other speakers. And then also you got to build relationships to get the gigs in the first place. People always say, well, how did you get chosen to be a keynote speaker on a conference stage? I knew the event planner and I knew the event planner because I had been to her conference before and to other conferences where she was attending as a speaker who wasn't paid. Mm. So takes time.
1: So I I hope people realize how valuable the things you've heard today are if you are trying to build a speaking business. I mean, you've really gotten the keys to the kingdom today. So thank you so much. If people wanna learn more about you as a speaker, wanna follow your podcast, where can we find you online?
0: Sure, you can go to jennifermcclure.net. That will be the website or you can find all the other things there, but I'm on social media, Twitter at jennifermcclure.net. I have a Facebook page called at Jennifer McClure Speaker, I believe. And then the podcast is called Impact Makers, which you can find on the website or in iTunes or any of your other favorite podcast applications.
1: All right. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us
0: get the word out by leaving a review.